We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's um, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dignity of humanity. Think about these words here. Our mother was not a spy, and her execution was wrongful. The government cannot return our mother to her loving family, but it can admit this miscarriage of justice, exonerate our mother. These words were in an op-ed in the New York Times. The authors were sons Robert and Michael Mirapol, whose original last name was Rosenberg. Their mother was Ethel Rosenberg, who was put to death in the electric chair in 1953 for what was then called the crime of the century. Well, new information has finally come to light, revealing that not only was she innocent of the charges for which she was convicted and put to death, but that the government prosecution knew she was not guilty, but went ahead and pushed for the execution anyway, knowing she was not guilty. In March of 2016, Michael and Robert Mirapol launched a formal petition campaign to call on President Obama, and Attorney General Loretta Lynch to exonerate their mother. Now, it's true, 1953 was a long time ago. Is this still really important? More importantly, is our country ready to exonerate Ethel Rosenberg? With us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, today are Robert Mirapol and his daughter Jennifer Mirapol. Robert is an attorney, an author, an activist, and the younger son of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. In 1990, Robert founded the Rosenberg Fund for Children and served as its executive director until he retired from that position and his daughter, Jen, took over the fund's leadership in 2013. Robert remains on the RFC's board of directors. His blog, Still Out on a Limb, which concentrates on climate change, human rights, and politics, is at robertmirapol.com forward slash blog. Robert, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Also, it's a pleasure. Oh, indeed. And it's an honor, I must say. Also uh, with us is Jennifer Mirapol, his uh, daughter, who is now executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children and is the granddaughter of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, Ethel, whom they and we are trying to exonerate now. The RFC is a public foundation uh, which aids children in the U.S. whose parents have been attacked while struggling to wage peace, preserve civil liberties, safeguard the environment, combat racism, and organize on behalf of workers, political prisoners, and the LGBTQ community and others whose rights are under threat. And the uh, 
Uh, we'll, we'll deal with the uh, organization's very impressive, totally unique organization. It's at rfc.org. Well, again, Robert, thanks for being with us. The trial and sentence happened over 60 years ago. And while probably most listeners of Keeping Democracy Alive know the story, since it was so long ago, there may be some who are not familiar with it. You lost your parents, and it must be, frankly, grueling to tell this story as many times as you surely have told it. But for our listeners' benefit, for what crime were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, your parents, charged and convicted both in law and in the public's mind? Well, you know, that's actually, there's, there's two different answers to that question. Yeah, I know. Because the legal charge against them was conspiracy to commit espionage, that they conspired with others. My mother and father conspired with others to gather secrets from our secret uh, installation at Los Alamos, New Mexico, where the atomic bomb was being built, and transmit them to the Soviet Union. Uh, and the conspiracy supposedly involves my mother, my father, my mother's younger brother, David Greenglass, and his wife, Ruth Greenglass, and uh, several, another a courier named Harry Gold. Um, that was the people who were mentioned primarily at the trial. Um, so that was the conspiracy charge. But in the public mind, they were always the atomic spies uh, who betrayed our country. In other words, they were communist traitors who stole the secret of the atomic bomb. Uh, and that's really different from the actual charge, because the words atomic bomb, surprisingly enough, never even appear in the indictment against my parents. And the reason the government focused on conspiracy is conspiracy is a very vague charge. In order to be guilty of conspiracy, uh, all you have to do is take furtherance of that conspiracy, and you are as guilty as all the other conspirators. So something as simple as a phone call could make you guilty. Uh, and that's really how they went about going after my mother. So the, basically the, chart, the, the story of my parents' case was that the government said that Julius Rosenberg knew because he was a KGB agent about our secret work at Los Alamos to build the atomic bomb. And when he found out that his brother-in-law, who was an army sergeant, was going to be sent out there to work on manufacturing pieces of the bomb, he recruited him into a spy ring and that Greenglass was able to gather some information and transmit sketches of the cross-section mm -hmm. of the atomic bomb that he drew from memory uh, at my parents' apartment in New York City in September of 1945, uh, after the end of the war, and that my mother was present and that David Greenglass had handwritten notes that accompanied this sketch in which, and my mother typed up those notes. Uh, so that is the gist of the government's case. Um, and that, uh, what, when you focus on my mother, uh, mm -hmm. what you immediately realize is that even if everything that David and Ruth Greenglass said was true, that she actually was at this meeting and did this typing, then the government of the United States executed someone for typing. 
uh, because that was really the only evidence that was presented against my mother at trial. Hmm. And I wonder about proving she typed it. I, I don't know how, I mean, with fingerprinting the typewriter, I can't... I, well, you know, it was all oral. I mean, that's the thing about a conspiracy charge. You don't need to prove that anybody actually uh-huh. gave anything to anybody. All you have to show is that people conspiracy. planned to do it yes. and took one act in furtherance of their plan. I mean, to a, to a non-legal person, it almost sounds absurd, but that's what the law is. It's been interesting through the years to see how the conspiracy laws uh, have been applied. Oftentimes they are thrown out because it's so nebulous and, and uh, you can't really prove it. And and uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we're talking with uh, Robert Mirapol, uh, whose parents were Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, uh, put to death in 1953. And there's a new effort, which everybody can take part in, if they so choose, to exonerate her, his uh, his mother. And Robert, you were six at the time of the execution. Your brother was 10. You wrote a very powerful book, which I highly recommend if anybody wants to find out about it, about growing up in this huge shadow called an execution in the family. W- with the context of history we now have, it would be quite logical to blame the tragic results on the spirit of the times. Uh, you know, the, the statue of, of justice... The image of justice is a blindfolded woman holding a scale, indicating that emotions and politics could have no influence on the carrying out of what is supposed to be blind justice. You wrote in the Times op-ed that there was, quote, widespread panic about communism. Could there have been justice in this context? Was it even possible? Well, I think it was extremely difficult. Um, first of all, the jurors uh, were all drawn from the New York City area, and the people, uh, the trial took place in New York City. Um, The government's claim was that the people uh, on trial in front of them were responsible for giving our arch enemy, and this was at the height of the Cold War, the Korean War was raging, yes. American soldiers were being killed at the rate of about a thousand a month, mm. and the war went on for three years, um, and uh, that these people on trial gave our arch enemy the means to destroy you and your family by dropping an atomic bomb on New York City. Well, what could be more emotionally charged than that? Uh, and then you, you, you put that, that's from the juror's perspective. From the prosecution's perspective, we, one of the things that's truly remarkable about my parents' case is how much information we have about the, what went on internally in the government's prosecutorial effort uh-huh. that... Uh, through our Freedom of Information Act, my brother and I mounted a Freedom of Information Act in the 1970s through the 1980s, hmm. and we forced the release of hundreds of thousands of previously secret documents, uh, which, by the way, the government is still refusing to release 100,000 documents, which hmm. is kind of amazing, but it's true. Wow. And all of this material, is it reveals a lot. Um, and what it reveals, among other things, vis-a-vis my mother is that shortly after my father's arrest, the prosecutor said, well, there's not really enough evidence to arrest Ethel Rosenberg, 
But if we can arrest her, we could use her as a lever to get Julius to cooperate. In other words, the whole effort to convict my mother was an act of hostage-taking designed to force my father into cooperating. So when you put together the emotions that were wrapped up in the jury and the tactics of the prosecution, there's no way that this could be fair. And then to make matters worse, we now know from those files that the judge and the prosecutor secretly communicated before, during, and after the trial. Oh my. Uh, again, I think it may be hard for some listeners to believe this, but this is not our claim. This is what the government's own documents show, and that's the power vis-a-vis exonerating Ethel. There, there is a lot to talk about. I want to make sure people understand that. It's amazing. You're saying that the prosecutor spoke with the judge. That is completely <laughs> not kosher, to put it mildly. That's amazing. No, it's, 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 uh, and, it's, it, and that prosecutor who conferred with the judge was none other than Roy Cohn, the famous <laughs> uh, person who worked with McCarthy. Yes. Uh, so it wasn't just any prosecutor. It was kind of the worst of the worst. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's funny, but it's obviously tragic as well. Now, I understand. I, I want to go through the trial a little bit. There were only mm-hmm. five pieces of physical evidence and three people who testified against your parents. I, I wonder how much of a miscarriage of justice it was for the jury to be limited to such skimpy evidence. And, you know, how could they do that with, with very, very, I mean, just three uh, people testifying and five pieces of evidence? Well, those are the major, you know, those are the major prosecution ev- uh, uh, witnesses. There were a few other minor people who testified at the trial, but that's, it was David and Ruth Greenglass and yeah. Harry Gold yeah. as for the prosecution, and yeah. that was it. Um, and they were obviously the, the real core of the case. And even, even, you know, you talk about five pieces of evidence. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the pieces of evidence was this cross-section drawing of the atomic bomb. Uh-huh. Uh, well, you know, that wasn't the original drawing. According to David Greenglass, oh. that was passed on to the Soviet Union years earlier. No, David Greenglass testified that he drew that sketch from memory in his cell a few days before the trial. So, what? you know, what's it evidence what? of? Uh, oh it's it's not you know it's 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 a physical piece of evidence, but it doesn't really prove anything because it's not the the sketch that was supposedly transmitted. Absolutely, and that's that's Absolutely. the way it goes with all all the evidence. I mean, I could recite more of them, but but they follow along that line. It was really uh, what it comes down to is the case was entirely about the credibility of the witnesses hmm. who. Were the jurors going to believe the government of the United States and wow. David and Ruth Greenglass, who said, you know, we were communists, but now we've seen the light, and the government, or Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who, when asked if they were members of the Communist Party, took the Fifth Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, which made them appear guilty wow. in the minds of the jurors. All of this happening at the height of the Cold War, right. when anyone who was a member of the Communist Party was immediately presumed to be guilty anyway. Hmm. Yeah, I make. I'm somehow reminded of uh, if one is a Muslim American these days, one I'm sure there are people who automatically assume they support ISIS or whatever. And of course, well, and and that's that's one of the points I want to get back to something yes, you said sure, at sure, the sure. very top of the program that 
you know, this is an ancient case or an old case, 60-plus years. Right. But why is it important today? Well, you are seeing when, when you have our judicial system manipulated into uh, arresting, convicting, and ultimately executing someone who the government knows is not guilty of what they're executing her for, um, that is a threat to everyone who is in opposition to the powers that be, because that could be turned against anyone. It could be turned against people deemed terrorists today. Uh, it could be turned against uh, activists of all sorts. Mm. And so it is a, a mortal threat to civil society and the judicial, the fairness of the judicial system. And so my parents' case becomes a potent human rights object lesson that uh, reverberates to this day and to demonstrate how the system was manipulated and the resulting injustice from that manipulation is something that is extremely relevant now. And that is one big reason, I'm sure, why the process that you're going through right now, it's been a long, obviously very arduous process, but why it's important to, to do that and to look at this, because it can be, and often is, so manipulated. I mean, this case was huge in the headlines, but there's a lot of other cases where, frankly, injustices are done and, uh, you know, lacking evidence. And in these times when there's so much fear out there that is being manipulated by people in the government and people who want to be in the government. Um, and it's uh, it's got to be dealt with now. It absolutely has to be dealt with to protect us all from more injustice. And when you described, I hadn't heard that before, about the, the drawing that uh, your mother's brother, David Greenglass, uh, used was done after he was arrested. That's that's amazing. It's and it's amazing to me. He, but perhaps we could talk about a little bit of his motivation. Uh, he aided and abetted letting his sister be put to death and knowingly, wrongly convicted. How? What? What is known about what he did? How crucial was his testimony to the conviction? How key is it now to a possible exoneration of your mother? Well, his, his testimony and that of his wife was absolutely key. It was the only testimony against her. Um, so without their testimony, there could be no conviction. Um, and his motivation, well, he, he was interviewed uh, on the CBS News program, 60 Minutes 2. It was the Tuesday oh, yeah. supplement. I don't think they have that oh, no. program anymore. Uh, he was interviewed in 2001 um, about why he did what he did, and he said basically, and I'm not going to quote him exactly, but the gist of what he said was, look, the government gave me a choice. It was my wife or my sister, uh, if, and I don't sleep with my sister. Uh, so he had to, in order to get, accept the deal that the government offered him, which is that if he cooperated and his wife cooperated and they testified against Ethel and Julius, then 
David would be just given a prison sentence, he wouldn't be executed, and his wife would not be indicted and would get to stay home and take care of their two children. Mm -hmm. Uh, He took the deal. And so in order to protect his wife, he implicated his sister. Now, in terms of the strength of his testimony, this is really the big news that came out last summer uh, when the release of David Greenglass's grand jury testimony first was made public. Uh, You know, both David and Ruth essentially testified twice, once before the grand jury and once at trial. And at the grand jury, they both said Ethel Rosenberg wasn't involved, Hmm. and they said it under oath, and it was contemporaneously recorded. Um, And uh, then at the trial, they testified that she was involved. Uh, at the grand jury, they didn't even mention any meeting taking place in September, let alone Ethel being present and there being any typing. But at the trial, they testified that this happened. Um, so it's the fact that the two of them contradicted their testimony, their two sets of sworn testimonies, proves that they're perjurers. It's hard to determine exactly what they were lying about and when they were lying. Um, but it, once you know that the only evidence given against the defendant is given by people who are proven to have perjured themselves, <laughs> uh, that makes it very difficult to maintain the conviction. But there's one more piece that I want to add to that. Sure. Uh, there, okay. could, there could be several more pieces, but there's sure. one that is equally powerful. And that is we now know from the KGB files mm-hmm. that... KGB gave all of its agents code names. Right. Uh, they gave Julius Rosenberg a code name. He wasn't an atomic spy, but he did engage in espionage during uh, the 1940s, and he got involved in an effort to help the Soviet Union uh, defeat the Nazis. Um, and David and Ruth Greenglass were both given code names. Ethel Rosenberg was not given a code name. And that's as close to proof positive as you can get that the KGB did not consider her a spy. Hmm. Now, there are right-wing historians out there who are still trying to say, oh, yes, she really was a spy. Uh, But, you know, the absurdity of these people who are still trying to fight the Cold War, (laughs) saying that they know better than the KGB who was a KGB spy, uh, it's just ridiculous. Amazing. And I wonder, you know, we have... What what we're doing now, what is going on now with the push for exoneration of your mother, Ethel mm-hmm. Rosenberg, is uh, that a, a tremendous injustice was done. And obviously David Greenglass had, you know, real motivation. But do you think the government itself pushed him to lie or, or was it his idea? What is known about that? Well, I think once the prosecutors developed this lever theory that they wanted to... Uh-huh convict Ethel in order to pressure Julius. And what they wanted, the reason they were so hot to pressure Julius, is that Julius was no atomic scientist. He had an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. But what Julius had done is he had recruited some of the people who he knew uh, who had gotten science training uh, and who were more advanced than he was. 
into providing the Soviet Union with military industrial information to help them fight the Nazis during World War II. Uh, and he was the recruiter. So the FBI was keen to get him to cooperate because he knew who the other people were. And so he would, as one of the prosecutors said, if Julius Rosenberg would cooperate, we'd have one of the biggest spy cases in the history of the world. So they wanted to, that was important to them. And that's why they went after Ethel with this lever theory. Uh, and, and that's, so I think they basically were saying to David and Ruth Greenglass, you've got to provide more information against Ethel. Uh, and they were, perhaps David was very reluctant to do it, but he really felt that he had no choice. I don't want to defend him, but I think it's very easy for us to sit in judgment uh, over someone who's sitting in a jail cell and being told, if you don't cooperate, we're going to execute you. Uh, none of us know how we would react in that situation until we're confronted with it. That's mighty generous of you, I must say. And, and in in the op-ed in the New York Times, it, uh, I'm not sure if it was you or Michael, it was written that a month before the trial, a prosecutor told the congressional committee, quote, the case is not too strong against Mrs. Rosenberg, but for the purpose of acting as a deterrent, I think it is very important that she be convicted too and be given a stiff sentence, end of quote. When did that come out? Was there any public record of that particular testimony of the prosecutor to the Congressional Committee? We forced that out through our Freedom of Information Act in the late 1970s. Um, you know, it the pieces, the sort of pieces that have been falling, uh, the dominoes, if you will, uh, in about Ethel's case, uh, has evolved slowly. Slowly but surely, we have understood the prosecution strategy. We've understood that the KGB didn't call it, consider Ethel a spy. We've under, we now know that David and Ruth Greenglass told different stories to the grand jury and the prosecution. All the pieces have come together. And that's why we wrote that op-ed piece last August, because we finally could prove it. Uh, and that's rather than, you know, think, you know, extrapolate from what we had. We had all the pieces together, and that's why we've mounted this campaign. Now, we don't consider it, you know, I'm not, uh, it's not an easy thing to get the government to admit that uh, they executed somebody wrongfully. They've never done it in, in history, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, I think this we've got a very powerful case. You have the facts. Again, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here along with uh, Robert Mirapol, who uh, we're talking about uh, the new move to exonerate his parents. And a little later, we'll get to uh, uh, Robert's daughter and uh, what she is doing with the Rosenberg Fund for Children about the exoneration thing. You know, the, the trial uh, concluded with the carrying out of the sentence, but that in no way ended it. I mean, that was 63 years ago. The op-ed that you and your brother wrote now calls on Attorney General Loretta Lynch and President Obama to now formally exonerate Ethel Rosenberg before they leave office. That, that's big. It's a very big step to take. The case has been discussed and debated ever since it occurred. Why now? What is new that makes you 
confident enough to think that perhaps this exoneration is possible? Well, the, there is no more powerful evidence than sworn testimony given contemporaneously recorded uh, before a set of jurors uh, that is then preserved and transcribed by, uh, you know, official court entities. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have that for the first time uh, last August, the chief prosecution witness uh, testimony that was simultaneously recorded, stated before grand jurors under oath, gave that testimony in contradiction to what he said at trial. And this is, there's nothing more powerful than that. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like you're looking at some file uh, somewhere that could have been uh, accurate, or maybe somebody who wrote up the memo in that file spun things a little bit, or maybe it got uh changed and updated in a way. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can happen. But when you have this kind of powerful proof, uh, there's, that's why our court system operates that way, because nothing can be more powerful. So that's really what's changed. It was, you know, we had lots of evidence beforehand, uh, but this is, is the linchpin. I also think it was the last remaining piece of evidence that we were waiting for. You know, since David Greenglass was such a key prosecution witness against my grandmother, having that testimony released last summer and being able to see that it contradicted completely what he said at her trial, that was, you know, that was a bombshell, for lack of a better word. That really was the, as far as we know, last big piece of evidence that allowed us to make this call for exoneration. And, and to, add, to add to that, the New York Times, who the ownership of the New York Times was ac- were actually family friends with the judge in my parents' case, uh, that never editorialized against the case during uh, the mm-hmm. 1950s, that in fact refused to accept paid advertising from the National Committee to exonerate uh, the Rose- to secure justice in the Rosenberg case uh, that during the 1950s, uh, the New York Times would not have been willing to publish such an op-ed piece from us if we didn't have such a powerful hand to display. Uh, Interesting. So the hand is, I mean, it's been going on, you've been checking it out for decades now, and now you have, I hate to say it, the smoking gun that... In fact, the government knew your mother was not guilty and went ahead with it anyway. What? And you're not seeking exoneration for for Julius, your father. Was he being? What was his uh, situation? Was he being loyal to uh, communism, or could it have been, you know, just being loyal and protective of his friends and and his compatriots? And I wonder, maybe as part of that. Could Ethel have cooperated to save herself? And if so, why didn't she? Well, you know, that's, that, that's a series of, 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 of 
interesting and complex questions. I think that Julius, uh, we're not, Julius was not guilty of stealing the secret of the atomic bomb. Uh, there was no secret of the atomic bomb. As one atomic scientist said to me years later, it was an industry, not a recipe. Uh, hmm. And hmm. so he was executed for something that he didn't do. But the government knew that scientists were sharing information and did not want to take on the atomic scientists who would be able to demonstrate that there really was no secret of the atomic bomb, that other countries could develop their own bombs if they put enough time and effort into it. Uh, and that has been proven true by uh, history sure. over and over again. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't want to, the prosecution, the FBI, didn't want to admit that they had failed in their abilities to keep the supposed secrets mm -hmm. out of the hands of other countries. It was much easier to go after Julius Rosenberg, who was a non-atomic spy, but still a spy, and call him the master atomic spy with the aid of David Greenglass, who had a high school education and really couldn't steal any secrets either. Um, uh, that was the government's motivation for going after my father. But my father was, because he was guilty of something else, it becomes a more nuanced thing. It's mm. hard to exonerate somebody uh -huh. who was technically guilty of conspiracy to commit espionage, but wasn't guilty of the thing they actually killed him for. Mm -hmm. That's, that just doesn't work as well. Um, though I would like the government to declare that he too shouldn't have been executed. I'm not sure that that's in the cards at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's really, and then to, go, to move off of that and go to why my mother didn't cooperate, the thing is, is the, my parents weren't asked to tell the truth. They were asked to tell lies hmm. and to tell lies about their political comrades. These weren't professional spies so much as a group of young, idealistic people who were trying to take on and engage the world at a time of worldwide turmoil during World War II, and were doing what they could to defeat Nazism. Uh, my father had, a, had bad vision. He could not fight in the army. So this was his contribution to the mm. war effort, or that's the way he saw it. Mm -hmm. um, and my mother, neither of them were in a position to say, okay, you know, yeah, we, Julius did something, Ethel didn't do anything, but it wasn't anything about the secret of the atomic bomb. The government would not have accepted that. Mm. They would have had to lie, they would have had to implicate their friends in uh, exactly what they were being implicated in, and... My mother, if she had agreed to cooperate, would have had to turn on my father, and that was impossible given the nature of their relationship. So I don't know if that fully answers no, everything, no. and in some ways I'm speculating because I can't really get into my parents' head. Mm -hmm. But from what I understand about them and their relationship and the letters that they wrote while they were in prison, uh, that's a very informed uh, guess at what motivated them. I wanted to ask a little bit more about, it's curious, David Greenglass, after he finished serving his 10-year sentence for conspiracy to commit espionage, he met with New York Times reporter Sam Roberts. 
That was fairly big, too. When did that happen, and why wasn't the effort to exonerate Ethel Rosenberg started at that time? Well, yeah, uh, David Greenglass, um, actually, he was, he, did, he was released after 10 years, but he actually was sentenced to 15. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, he, but that was in 1960 when he was released. Um, he didn't speak with Sam Roberts. Uh, he did a series of taped interviews with Sam Roberts in, well, I don't know exactly when it was. I know the book came out in 2001. Um, and uh, the book, in the book, he basically, Greenglass admits that he lied about Ethel in order to protect his wife. But that was just his statement. It wasn't a grand jury testimony sworn to under oath and contemporaneously recorded by an official court reporter. Uh, and one of the problems that you have when somebody admits that, they're, that they lied is once they admit that they're a liar, it becomes uh-huh. difficult to figure out when they're telling the truth. <laughs> so while David Greenglass's admissions in Sam Roberts' book were another piece added to the jigsaw puzzle, the key piece, and I think Jen hit the nail on the head uh, when she said this was the final piece that fell into place, uh, did not come until this year. So uh, I will admit to you that we actually, after Sam Roberts' book came out, and, and at, during, in the years before, after 2001 and before 2015, uh, that my brother and I did explore with a law firm the possibility of doing something just about my mother's case, but determined that that would be difficult given the passage of time and given that we really were still missing some key pieces of information. Uh Uh Yeah, you want to get your ducks in a row, especially if you want to win. What is significant about the date, September 28, 2015? Oh, okay. Well, September 28, 2015 would have been my mother's 100th birthday. Right. And on that date, 13 members of the New York City Council and Manhattan's borough president declared uh, my mother's execution wrongful. Uh, and, and that's like, uh, that's quite an amazing thing to have a significant yeah. segment of the city council and Manhattan's borough president declare that my mother shouldn't have been executed, that it was an injustice. Uh, this, uh, was a bombshell in and of itself. Um, and uh, that is one of the pieces of the puzzle that fell into place. What I mean is is that in July, David Greenglass's testimony was released. In August, uh, the New York Times op-ed piece came out. In September, the city council and Manhattan Borough president issued their proclamation. This is what emboldened us uh, at the Rosenberg Fund for Children to start getting the technology and the ability together to mount this online petition campaign. And while it took us a few more months to get it together, uh, we finally were able to launch it last month. Um, and, and I want to say, and this may be repeated, but it's useful to repeat it, that, that 
anybody who wants to sign this petition can go to www.rfc.org. It's a very simple email, I mean, uh, online website address. Um, and the minute it opens up, it will be obvious how to go about signing that petition. Yes. And we urge people to do so. Yes. Um, rfc.org is where the petition is. We'll, we'll say that a number of times before the end of the show because I have yeah. a feeling a lot of people will want to take part in this. Your brother Michael writes that, quote, Ethel was a hostage that the government murdered, end of quote. Many of us, I, I was shocked to read this, many of us remember William P. Rogers, who served as Nixon's Secretary of State while Henry Kissinger was really in charge, um, I didn't know that at the time of your parents' execution, William Rogers was Deputy Attorney General of the United States. As you write, he said of Ethel, she called our bluff. And you say that should shock the nation's conscience. Say more about that, please. Well, I mean, uh, that they, they knew that Ethel was not a spy. Okay? Uh, and... But they held her hostage. And when you think about it, when you think about terrorism and hostage-taking, and, and I, I have to credit my brother here because he's the one who first came up with this analysis, and I think he's totally correct, that uh, what do you do? Uh, in some ways, my mother was taken and a gun was put to her head. Mm. And my father was told, uh, and this is figurative, of course, uh, my father was told, you cooperate or we're going to pull the trigger. Uh, and that's just what terrorists do. They take hostages and they threaten them with death if you don't do something. Mm. And when my father refused and my mother refused, then they executed her. And that was a terrorist act. I mean, it's 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 right in line with that. Uh, so that's that's what we mean when we talk about my mother being taken a hostage. And and when you think about what uh, Secretary of State Rogers said was. He was admitting that that's exactly what happened. She called our bluff, and we had to, we didn't want to appear weak, we didn't want to back mm. down, mm. so we pulled the trigger, mm. uh, even though we knew that she wasn't a spy. Um, and that's, that's an astounding admission uh, from somebody in such a high position in government. Uh, so how do we, you know, the question is, is how does the government deal with something like that now? Is it going to continue to cover it up? Is it going to continue to refuse to acknowledge the wrong that was done? Or is it finally going to come clean? And in the process of coming clean, is it going to educate the public about the dangers of assuming that people of guilt are guilty, of allowing the government to uh, play the national security card in court cases so that we can't get to the bottom of what actually happened? And that's why you're going to end up with people like Chelsea Manning, who was convicted under the same act that my parents were convicted under, and why someone like Edward Snowden mm -hmm. is still in Russia, because he knows he can't get a fair trial back here because of the kinds of things that happened in my, my parents' case and the use of national security as an excuse to gut the protections of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Yeah, and I think to kind of add on to that, sure. the way that the government then felt comfortable treating my grandmother in that way, I think was incredibly tied to the fact that 
there was a separate standard for what sort of rights and protections my grandparents had because they were communists. And the idea that at any given point in history when there is a significant fear of whatever that other group mm-hmm. might be, mm-hmm. whether it's communists, whether it's terrorists, you know, from then, from now, that to somehow think that those people are less deserving of a fair trial of equal protection under the law, that kind of comes into the Rosenberg Fund for Children and what we do now, that that's one of the reasons that this particular effort is not just of personal significance to our family or of historical significance, but it has a very relevant contemporary connection to the ways that some people who are active on behalf of beliefs that they feel strongly about that are in opposition to powerful government forces that people are still experiencing. And that's one of the reasons that setting the record straight is so important, because you acknowledge those miscarriages of justice in the past, hopefully partially, to prevent them from happening again. Amen. That is very chilling to think about uh, the possibilities that could happen with, you know, the other people, the Muslims, whoever, you know, don't have the same rights. And this exoneration is important for the future, obviously, not just the past. I want to ask about, I mean, President Obama was a constitutional lawyer. Do you think that background may move him to exonerate? Do you think there'll be you know, is it too politically risky for him to do that? What are your thoughts on, on how uh, President Obama will, will handle it? And does the fact that he was a constitutional lawyer uh, factor into yeah, this? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's impossible to predict. All you can say is, is that when presidents leave office, they sometimes do things that you don't expect them to do, particularly in the sort of pardon air area. Now, this is not a pardon because... Right. You can't pardon somebody who is not guilty, um, but it is, and so in some ways it is, it is different from the standard. Uh, it is not totally unprecedented. There are some similar things that have happened, uh, but we need to, uh, so we're, that's why we're calling for exoneration. In fact, in some ways, if you're looking for an echo of this, you can look to Governor Michael Dukakis's proclamation declaring that Sacco and Vanzetti should not have been convicted, which he did on the 50th anniversary of their execution in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, you know, many people think who know about this proclamation, uh, it too is fading into history. Many people think, well, you know, he's, he declared them innocent. He didn't declare them innocent. He just said that their trial was not fair, their conviction was unjust, and therefore they should be presumed innocent because that's the nature of our system and the stain should be wiped uh, from them and their family. And that's pretty much what we're saying here, that because the evidence essential to my mother's conviction came from perjurers, and we now know that they, that she was not guilty, uh, that the, she, her conviction should be wiped away and her name should be cleared, and that we consider that an exoneration. Now we, you know, that's we can't prove that she was innocent, okay? What I mean by that uh, is that when you have a charge like conspiracy, uh, two or more people got together and planned in secret something and took one act in furtherance of their plan, how can we know that she never did that with Julius in any way? We can't 
prove it. Uh, but we can look at the strength of the evidence, and it's clear that there was no justification right, to right. convict her. Right. And that we consider an exoneration. Yeah. Uh, so that's... So we're basically uh, returned to the presumption of innocence yes. that it was the starting place because the evidence has all been undermined. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty clear. Or, or even worse, destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Proven. Really d- demolished. Now, Miriam Schneier uh, is one of many people who have written about and studied the case for oh, about 50 years. Recently said she thinks that the country is more prepared than ever to reconsider Ethel's case. Do you think that is so? And if so, why? Yeah, and I sort of, you know, vis-a-vis Obama, I think that, yes, I think there is an increased understanding uh, particularly with vindications of people, whether it be DNA and others, that our system makes mistakes. Now, this wasn't a mistake. This was a conscious effort. Yeah, yeah. But the, and in fact, a lot of these exonerations were, they're described as mistakes, but in reality, they're often zealous prosecutors who are covering up their misdeeds because mm-hmm. they want to get convictions and look tough and want to get reelected. Absolutely. This, that, and the other thing. Oh, yes. And I think there's a general understanding in the public that this happens. And so there is uh, a willingness to accept this. But I think from Obama's point of view, because it's the end of his term, because it's the end of his second term, uh, he may be willing to go out on a limb. I mean, I admit this is a long shot. Uh, but that doesn't mean, you know, that we won't be surprised. And it's clear to me that if we can gather enough signatures and mount a public campaign, and we have, you know, six, eight months to do this, this is not just around the corner, mm. um, that we could make this happen. Uh, it's, in other words, it's not impossible, and I think it's quite worth giving it our best shot. So in terms, I, I want to talk about that process now. How many uh, signatures, I, I guess there's uh, some standard in the White House of, uh, of getting you know, a certain number of signatures before the president will, will act, but if you get enough signatures, uh, the president will say one thing or another, or a statement will come out. Uh, how, is, how many signatures are there so far, and how many are you trying to get? And how is it working? And actually, uh, I might as well turn to, to Jen. You're, tell us. I can certainly answer that for you. So there, there is a kind of threshold, um, but that's if you use the White House's petition site, uh-huh, whitehouse.gov. Uh-huh. If you I go see. through that site, I believe the way that is set up is it's 100,000 signatures right. in 30 days. And we chose to do this through the RFC website, both because it was our project, and we also recognize that it was highly likely that this would take more than 30 days, and we wanted the opportunity to build this campaign. Um, I think what we will do is, you know, 100,000 is still a nice number. It's a good goal. I think that we would certainly hope to reach that. We would hope to exceed that. I think there are many more people than that in this country who would support this campaign if we can let them know about it. And if they, quite frankly, read the petition itself, it is you know, well-sourced and provides, I believe, a really compelling case for exoneration. So that certainly is our goal. Um, we're, I believe that once we, you know, once we come to either hit a number that we say, all right, this is, this is where we are, let's, let's move this forward, we will then um, bring those petitions, submit those petitions kind of um, 
officially and try to move that process forward. My guess is that that would probably be after the election, that it would be Mm -hmm. in the fall. So Mm -hmm. in that window when the president has, in some ways, the most opportunity Mm -hmm. to act based on what he wants to do rather than the political forces that usually would dictate each and every decision that that would be made. And so that, that is really our goal, is to continue building this campaign, to raise awareness about the exoneration effort, to have as many people as possible read and sign and share the petition, and to gather that so that we are primed to present this request to the president after the election, before he leaves office. That makes sense. And I think right now we're at, we're at, we're at about 5,500 signatures. Right. So this has been kind of what we would call a, a soft launch. Uh-huh. We've shared it with the Rosenberg Fund for Children community. We are kind of in the early process right. of helping spread the word about this campaign, and our goal, as I said, is to really build it from there over the next couple of months and over the summer and into the fall. And I would think that, you know, this isn't about some, you know, arcane bit of history. This is about now and the future. And oftentimes people act when it when they have an interest in acting for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I would think that a, a good argument could be made that if you're a person who cares about the right to dissent, if you care about, uh, you know, our traditional freedoms, uh, you know, if if we get a Trump or a Cruz in there, this kind of stuff right. could be, you know, really, I mean, I have an interest. I, I would want to make an investment in, uh, you know, ensuring more justice in the future and that there can't be, uh, uh, you know, political trials like this in the future. I wonder if either one of you would care to speak to that. No, I think that's really true. And, you know, certainly that's one of the reasons that this felt like such an appropriate campaign for the Rosenberg Fund for Children is not just that our history really comes from this case and from my father and uncle's experiences as children, but also that our current beneficiaries who come from really different backgrounds, from parents involved in very different types of activism across the country, have experienced differing degrees of kind of a similar problem, that government overreach, that targeting of activists, that equating dissent with treason, Mm. that all of that is still operating in our country in a way that harms individuals, that harms families, and that shedding light on egregious examples of that injustice is incredibly important, not just for the individuals most impacted by those cases, but also for making sure that there we have a functioning democracy and the opportunity yeah. to dissent and to act in furtherance of issues that we care about for all of us. Absolutely. And I know we have just a little bit of time left, but one of the beautiful things to come out of this horrible experience that, that you know your family has had is one of my favorite I have to say, incredibly unique charitable organizations, the Rosenberg Fund for Children. I wonder if you could just tell us briefly what it is. It's really unique and why the RFC is managing this campaign. So the Rosenberg Fund for Children provides for the educational and emotional support of children of targeted activists in the United States and targeted activist youth. And in many ways, it is an opportunity for first my father and now myself and the entire 
RFC staff and board to give back to the incredible community that supported my father and uncle, um, first in the effort to save their parents' lives and then after the executions, really did make sure that my dad and uncle were able to go to progressive schools and summer camps and participate in creative programs in the arts and drama and receive therapy. All of that was possible because there was a fund raised to make it possible for my dad and uncle. And so this is that on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. It is an organization that takes donations from thousands of people across the country who are committed to standing with activists who are targeted, who are prosecuted, who are arrested, who are injured, who lose their jobs, who in some cases lose their lives because of their efforts on behalf of a more just and equitable world for all of us and who are also parents and who children need to be supported in the same way that my father and uncle were supported. And, if I may add my two cents, the website at www.rfc.org is where to go not only to sign the petition, but to find out more about the RFC and its efforts. And, and, and Jen talked about it being on a larger scale. Uh, we give away about $370,000, $375,000 a year, and uh, in our 25-year history, it's, I think our total grants are about $6 million now. Yeah, we're, we're, we'll hit the $6 million mark this year. Oh, it's a wonderful and, you know, organization. It, it is. Go ahead. And I was just saying it's a wonderful organization. There is nothing like it in the world. And it's, it's just, and I just wanted to make sure people got it. RFC.org is where to go to sign the petition, to exonerate, and to help protect uh, the future of, of the right to dissent. Uh, RFC.org, and you can check out the organization there and the amazing work they do. Thank you so much uh, for all that you're doing, uh, Robert and Jen. And uh, I hope people will participate in this. It doesn't cost anything to sign the uh, petition to exonerate. RFC.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Do what you can. This is a group effort keeping democracy alive. Thanks so much. And it's about telling the truth. <laughs>